every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Friday, the 10th of November. Thank you for listening and making us one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong and Singapore. And according to pod status, we're also growing in popularity in Japan, Sweden, and Finland. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, consumer prices in China shrank more than expected in October. China's consumer price inflation dropped by 0.2% year-on-year in October after a flat reading in September. Food prices declined the most in 25 months, falling 4% versus 3.2% in September, continuing their downward trend for the fourth straight month due to a steeper decrease in pork prices, which fell over 30% in October versus 22% in September. China published its long-awaited plan to tackle climate-warming methane on Wednesday, ahead of the COP28 climate summit, but included no firm targets for reducing those emissions, um, emissions, only goals for reusing them as fuel. Some policy analysts called the plan vague and disappointing. The Philippines' economy grew faster than expected in the third quarter, thanks to a boost from state spending. GDP expanded 5.9% year-on-year, that's up from 4.3% growth in the second quarter, and it beat markets' forecasts of a 4.7% rise. It marked the 10th consecutive quarter of yearly expansion in the Philippines. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said Thursday he and his colleagues remain committed to achieving a stance of monetary policy that's sufficiently restrictive to bring inflation down to 2% over time, but he said we're not confident that we've achieved such a stance. Nevertheless, he stressed the Fed can be cautious as the risks between doing too much and too little have come into closer balance. On today's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lun, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Corinne Hearn, Partner and Chief Sustainability Officer at East Capital Group. And with a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, the CEO at Staten Partners. And if you want to tell me how we're doing, then you can get in touch by going to peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'm also on Facebook. Peter Lewis Money Talk is the page. And on, and on X, I'm at moneytalkr3. Stocks headed lower following Jerome Powell's speech and were also hit by a poor Treasury bond auction, with the S&P 500 falling for the first time in nine sessions. The benchmark index declined 0.8%, closing at 4,347. The Dow dropped 220 points, that's 0.7%, to close at 33,892. The Nasdaq Composite lost 0.9% and settled at 13,521. The small cap Russell 2000 fell 1.5%, taking its losses for the week to 4%. Stocks hit session lows after Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said the Fed wasn't convinced that rates were high enough. Treasury yields lurched upwards after declining for most of the past three weeks, propelled higher in large part by a 30-year bond auction which saw weak demand. The 30-year yield was up 16 basis points on the day at 4.8%, and this was the biggest daily jump in the 30-year yield since March 2020. The benchmark 10-year yield rose 14 basis points to 4.64%. The interest rate sensitive 2-year yield moved back above 5%, climbing 10 basis points to 5.04%. Oil settled slightly higher on Thursday, but still hovered at three-month lows after a sell-off earlier this week, triggered by worries that demand is softening. Brent crude oil rose 0.6% to $80.01 a barrel. 
The dollar rose, aided by the upside in yields. The US dollar index climbed 0.4% to 105.92. The yen closed near the lows of the day at 151.34 yen. That's a loss of a third of a percent. The Chinese yuan was unchanged in onshore markets at 7.28 and a third of a renminbi. Gold managed gains despite the surge in the dollar. Spot gold rose 0.4% to $1,958 an ounce. China markets were weak Thursday after consumer prices slipped back into deflation. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index was almost unchanged at 3,053. The Shanghai Composite has fallen 1.1% this year. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index fell for a third day, retreating 57 points, that's a third of a percent, to 17,511. For 2023 so far, the city's benchmark index is off 11.5%, that's the worst performer among the major global equity index gauges. Country Garden shares slid 9.6% after surging over 12% in the previous session after Ping'an Insurance denied a Reuters report that Beijing has asked it to take over the property developer. Its affiliates, Country Garden Services, slumped 7.6%. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to rebound a little bit today. Uh, Futures markets pointing to a gain of about 30 points at the open. That's 0.2%. Should see the index start at around about 17,600 level. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. We've made it to the end of the week. It's a Friday morning. Always great to see Francis Lynn here in the studio on a Friday morning, the CEO of Geo Securities. Welcome back. And also welcome back to Corinne Hearn, who is Partner and Chief Sustainability Officer at East Capital Group. Nice to see you again, Corinne. Good morning. Um, The government data released yesterday showed uh, consumer prices in China shrank more than expected in October. China's consumer prices dropped by 0.2% year on year after a flat reading in September. Economists have been forecasting a 0.1% fall. The slide back into deflation suggests that multiple stimulus measures from Beijing did little to stimulate overall spending. Food prices declined the most in 25 months. Uh, They were down 4% compared to 3.2% in September. That's the fourth straight month of declines in food prices, mainly due to a very large decrease in pork prices, which fell over 30% in October compared to a decline of 22% in September. Non-food inflation, though, was unchanged at 0.7%. Core consumer prices which exclude prices of food and energy, increased by 0.6% year-on-year in September. That's the least in four months. And on a monthly basis, the CPI fell by 0.1% compared with a 0.2% rise in September. Francis, do you want to kick off? Um, a bit of a mixed picture here. A lot of people yeah. focusing on that consumer price yeah. uh, inflation <laughs> turning negative, but um, how, how concerned should we be by it? Uh, not really that concerned because that's... Uh uh, 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 really affected by one item, uh, food pork prices, which fell by 30%. And it's just that uh, uh, during last month, a lot of pork, <laughs> uh, uh, people slaughtered a lot, lot of pork because six months ago, they, they raised a lot of piglets. <laughs> right, so, and right. also vegetables and fruits fell slightly. But I think next month, it, it, it will be uh, go back to normal, like uh, no no increase at all. But but that really show uh, the lack of demand in the economy because people are not spending 
uh, people are still saving. So uh, that shows the uh, Chinese economy is still in the doldrums. <laughs> Have you heard of a guy called Mordecai Ezekiel? By any chance. Okay, well, let me tell you who he is. He was the guy that first coined the term the hog cycle in (laughs) agricultural economics. Um, And what he noted is that when pork prices were high, farmers stopped um, slaughtering pigs so that they rebuilt up their herds. And then that ultimately led to a glut of pigs the following season and a collapse in prices, which then led the herds to shrink, which in turn pushed prices back up again. So this is how this hog cycle come about. It Mm. seems, I mean, he said this back a a hundred years ago, but it does look like the hog cycle is alive and well in China, doesn't it? Every six months you have this up and down in (laughs) pork prices. But, But in Hong Kong, it's always staying high. It's uh, doubled the price in China because the uh, China resources is the only supplier in Hong Kong. We need a hog cycle here then as well. Uh, yeah, Isn't it right. interesting that we're still, as you said, this was 100 years ago and now it's year is 2023 and, and the world and the economies are still like very much actually influenced by, by things relating to related to nature and climate. Yep. I find it fascinating, really. Um, if I may say just a, a comment on this um, what could people say? I mean, disappointing numbers. Um, definitely agree with Francis that uh, it's clearly uh, yet a, a sign that that consumption demand is is struggling in in, in China. The um, uh, but we also had the national um, national day holidays. Uh, the numbers were actually not too bad. So, uh, but I, I was reading recently the the fact that the um, actually education and entertainment uh, CPI inflation was was down, and it been it's been it had been going up before that so it's kind of interesting to look through the numbers and see really try to find some trends on what's going on in this uh, in the Chinese economy I personally think the, the one and main reason where consumption is and demand in general is still weak is clearly the uh, the wealth effect uh, from the property market crisis uh, mm. because it has such an important impact even mm. I mean I would say emotionally for, mm. for many many Chinese uh, for, for the reasons we I'm sure we all uh, aware about and know about so it is really i mean whatever people would be expecting that we might see more further policy boost and uh, you know pboc easing and could do like you know uh, triple r cut uh, it eventually everything boils down to how are they going to be solving this uh, property market crisis uh, that is the number one question for for china well they they seem to be suggesting now the the latest plan is that solvent institutions should take over <laughs> some of these insolvent developers we're yeah. seeing you know the, all sorts of talk from reuters that ping an insurance is being asked by the central government to take over um, country garden the problem is when you do that, there are still losses that have got to be written down somewhere, aren't there? So you, mm. you can't get away from the fact that there are some enormous, enormous losses in the system. Someone somewhere has to take them. Yes. Or otherwise, um, the, these institutions are, are going to go bankrupt. Definitely. I think, I think uh, they want the uh, p- p- uh, companies with the biggest, uh, deepest pockets, like uh, the insurance companies, because mm-hmm. they, ha- they are sitting on the piles of uh, uh, cash, 
but I don't know whether they will ask uh, China uh, Mobile, the, ca the cash-rich uh, telecom operator, to take over one of the bankrupt developers. You know, then 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 you spread the losses to the all the equity investors mm. in China, <laughs> and you create zombie companies in that's the process. That's right. That's right. I think I I think the country uh, the, the central government has to do something uh, about the, those uh, trillions. Uh, UN in debt. <laughs> so is the answer then? I mean, the central government is basically the only clean balance sheet in China. The central <laughs> government has to t take on uh, some of this debt. Yeah, I think so. Be be because otherwise, there's nobody with the po deep pockets <laughs> to mm -hmm. bail them out. I think I, I I think I think you can write off the uh, uh, bondholders because these these are institutions who can absorb these losses. But then for the individual uh, small property holders, they cannot. Karim, we've seen a lot of measures now coming from the Chinese government over the last few weeks. As you said earlier, the real issue is a lack of demand, isn't it? Is there's just yes. not the consumer demand there? Mm -hmm. Are the policies that they've been announcing do they deal with that demand issue? Well, actually, they not really. And uh, but maybe here, I think probably they are quite right because it is difficult. I mean, you can make a decision of you know building bridges and railways and motorways, but actually making I mean getting measures for people to feel more confident about the future and um, make them want to spend money is much harder. I mean, mm. China has never really been going into, for instance, you know, distributing vouchers and consumption vouchers like uh, like actually Hong Kong did or or you know, US did during uh, during uh, the pandemic. So, you know, what I, I find really interesting is. I, you know, I, I lived in China, in, in the mainland, uh, it was years ago, at the time, um, 2010, 2013, at the time, everyone was talking about the fact, you know, China really needs to move to for this, like changing the growth drivers from, from a more like a infrastructure, uh, fixed asset investment spending to consumer spending. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and they, they've been trying hard, and it was all the focus on, you know, creating more services and, and making sure that you also shift, you know, in terms of employment and, and so forth. But uh, if you look at the household consumption as a percentage of GDP in China today, it's actually 37%. And it mm. was, when at the time when I lived in China, it was 39%. So despite all these efforts and clearly, uh, you know, I would say a strategic objective that was expressed by the, by the, by the authorities, it's not working. Um, and, and so it's today 37% only. And if you compare to the average for lower middle income countries, which we could consider China to be part of, part of, it's 63 percent. So we are much less, you know, it's still a country, it's still an economy which is very much driven by fixed asset investments. But of course, it's also because these fixed asset investments, even though they've been much weaker uh, during the recent years, have been so strong and so big. So it's kind of very difficult to kind of shift this big boat or this big ship to uh, towards a into different direction when you've had so much investment into uh, into the the economy but clearly i mean the problem is that a lot of this growth has been um delivered uh, through debt and the debt is increasing and has been increasing even though they are trying of course to reduce it and the this debt i mean basically the debt investment contribution to growth is declining so um the 
the silver lining around that is I think still the Chinese government uh, is following this very, very closely. And uh, even though they might not be always, I don't know how much Xi Jinping is aware about how uh, weak the sentiment is toward among consumers. I mean, stuff such as, you know, deflation numbers or deflation threats or or slow consumption growth. These are hard numbers. So mm. will pro- they will probably come on his desk and uh, let's see what, what can be done. And the problem is with a lot of that investment is it hasn't been productive investments, has it? That's been the problem. So you've increased the debt to GDP. Um, ratio because the GDP hasn't gone up as a result of that um, investment and isn't it in effect when you do that it's really a transfer from householders to, to local governments that in effect is what's <laughs> happening which is why how consumers aren't spending there needs to be something uh, to reverse that yeah I, I think you look at the biggest uh, fixes investor in China which is the railway uh, China has built something like 30,000 kilometers of high-speed railway, mm. more than the rest of the world combined. And uh, according to uh, uh, my reading or some, uh, some articles, only a few of them are profitable from Beijing to Shanghai and Beijing to Shenzhen. Mm. Only these two vertical lines are profitable. The worst one is the from... Uh, and uh, Lanzhou to Urumqi, uh, they plan. They they have planned for ten uh, uh, departures every day. Now they have only one departure every day. Mm-hmm. So so it's a waste of money, basically. And, and the other thing is, you can blame me on the Belt and Road. Uh, China spent trillions of dollars uh, on Pakistan alone. China spent something like 67 billion US dollars on Pakistan. Mm, mm. Uh, what it got in return? Well, some attacks on Chinese workers. <laughs> mm, mm. I, if I may, I think the, of course, uh, clearly, uh, as you know, around the world, it's very seldom that uh, railways are actually profitable. <laughs> it's, uh, it's almost, uh, it goes without saying, it's just like, uh, you know. But but I actually think that it's what China's done in terms of uh, railways investments is remarkable. And it's, it's yeah. an excellent thing for, if you think again about the climate, think about maybe maybe they used to be, uh, they, they were expecting more people to uh, to take this train. But they actually, first of all, the service is, is, is superb. I mean, for me, like whenever I'm traveling in China, I'm trying to take the train. It's it's, it's and compared to many other countries, not to compare, like for instance, the U.S. is just like, you know, it's a joke, really. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and uh, for, and then secondly, you think about the fact that thanks to this, you don't have a million more million cars polluting the roads and polluting our mm-hmm. air. So uh, I, I think it's really um, it's actually been a good thing, and it's something that um, China will be benefiting more even in in the future, even if it's maybe not today. It will definitely be a huge boost for for uh, for other uh, factors that actually even have an impact on the economic growth of, of China. It's interesting you mentioned the railways because President Xi Jinping this week was saying these what he describes as they, they are natural monopolies, railways, uh, power generation companies that he wants to see more investment in. Um, 
which is sort of moving away from, you may remember a couple of years ago, Premier Li Keqiang, the late Premier Li Keqiang, <laughs> he wanted to open those sectors up to the market yeah. uh, so that there was more competition. But we seem to be moving further away from that now with President Xi saying these are natural monopolies and the state needs to go and invest in them. It, 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 aren't we at risk here of just doing what we did in the property sector? It's all very well making this investment, but it may be not very productive investments. Yeah, I think that that's a problem when you're putting so much investment in one sector and neglecting the rest, I think. And then you take out the competition. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, if you look at Europe, is are they monopolists? Not, not really. Uh, uh, not in, yeah. Uh, some parts are, but it's... Uh, uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. But uh, power supply, maybe, I think it's more efficient to have one power supplier if you can concentrate them. But, mm. but then you can also make a case for uh, uh, open competition like in uh, Australia. <laughs> but when you hear President Xi talk about investing in natural monopolies, it just seems China's moving further and further yeah. away from yeah. a market-orientated economy. It just seems that President Xi doesn't really trust the markets and the private sector um, mm -hmm. to do what he wants to do. So it's got to be done through state investment and monopolies like, you know, railways, power, um, which is a shift, obviously, from property. But nevertheless, um, it's still an investment that could just go to waste, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think he, he is obsessed about a power being concentrated in his own hand. He he is like uh, Qing Dynasty emperor, mm. <laughs> basically. Mm. I think if you look at it from uh, an investor point of view, uh, I mean, state-owned enterprises have definitely been uh, um, supported by the government for for quite many years now, and and we all know that it's not done with the most efficient way, and and not creating a lot of growth, uh, and and the private market and the private own enterprises uh, should definitely benefit if there were different kind of tailwinds uh, in the uh, in the market. But um, at the same time, um, I still think, however, that you know China has fantastic companies. Uh, where I was, I visited uh, BYD. I uh, was there two days ago visiting their headquarters in Shenzhen, and it's f super impressive uh, what's going on. So you know, I think it, it, it's going to take more for to really beat the the the, the spirit down of, of Chinese entrepreneurs, and there's still mm. a lot of. A lot of things to be done there. That really is the star sector for China at the moment, isn't it? The, mm -hmm. uh, the electric yeah, vehicle yeah. uh, sector. Yeah. We, we, sh we shouldn't be too gloomy, though, either, should we? I know there's been a lot of focus mm. over the last 24 hours on deflation, but China isn't really in deflation, is it? Not, it, not in the way in which you have this really pernicious deflation where mm -hmm. not just consumer prices, but mm -hmm. financial assets are going down, wages mm -hmm. are declining, as we mm -hmm. saw in Japan. This is, this is more just a lack of inflation, really, isn't there, or dis <laughs> disinflation. It's not really deflation, is it? Yeah, well, uh, but, but the, uh, there's one catch. The population is not growing. Uh, China's population has been growing uh, until last year. I think last year is the first year that the population shrank. I think uh, the government must do more and mandating all women to have more than two children. Mm. Well, that was another thing President Xi focused on, wasn't it? Really, the, the role of women, which he saw yeah. very much as being in the home and, and having That's babies. Right. They are like a baby machines. <laughs> 
in terms of the overall economy, I mean, we had the the trade data, didn't we, which sort of gave a little bit of hope that maybe the domestic economy is doing better than we thought because imports unexpectedly rose, even though exports declined more than expected. So we sort of thought, well, maybe the domestic economy is not so bad. But then you see these inflation numbers, which suggest that, you know, maybe the domestic economy is still struggling. What, what, What should we be thinking about the China economy overall? I think it's staying the neutral right now. Uh, 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 if you look at similar economies, uh, look at South Korea and Taiwan. Actually, their exports grew last month, but China's exports fell. I think that's uh, that's a result of the pandemic lockdowns that uh, caused a lot of the uh, uh, foreign buyers to shift their purchasing away from China. So China is really uh, paying for the uh, uh, policies they they made during the pandemic years. And and once that's done, I think it will take years to bring them back. I personally think, I mean, clearly what we've seen in terms of um, these investors around the world turning away from the Chinese economy is clearly seen in the the numbers for foreign direct investments, yeah, because they, mm. they've been really uh, actually very weak. It's turned but, negative, I think, yes, hasn't it, for exactly. the first time ever. First time ever. And, um, and but, but specifically regarding the export numbers, I, I actually uh, have a little bit of a different interpretation of them as uh, uh, compared to Francis, because I think one of the reasons is also because, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a payback from this surge we saw during the pandemic when China basically delivered goods to the world that many could not. So, uh, in, and in some of these key export categories, you really can you can see that. But at the same time, which is very interesting, is China keeps actually make you know they make global market share gains in some years in in these recent years, despite facing all these you know roadblocks and increased U.S. import tariffs and technology restrictions and and now as well coming from the EU. So, what is happening? Which it doesn't, I don't think everybody seems to realize that, but what is happening is basically the Chinese exporters, they are increasingly linked to production networks in Southeast Asia. Mm. And instead of being what they've been for a long time, basically an end stage assembler, they're becoming a critical component supplier to the world. And this is a shift that that compared to to, to before. And uh, so, I mean, actually, personally, I, I still think that, you know, China is a, is a, is a, export powerhouse and uh, just the, the kind of things the exporting is is different and um, uh, but but you know it, it, these numbers are obviously interpreted by the market uh, always quite negatively because you have you know again we were mentioning the you know, property market issues then you have a weak domestic consumption growth you have this um, debt increasing and then you see these numbers and you go mm. oh my god you know this is really going like down the down the the, the, the drain and and uh, China is is in real big trouble I don't think China is is in such big trouble but compared to before as well whenever there was big trouble in China. Um, people, the government was reacting very forcefully, and and you know the stimulus program and policy boost and everything, and investors got used to that. And now there's a little bit of a, I think people are kind of say, oh please, 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 what you know, stimulate the economy, please, mm-hmm. please send us signals, <laughs> and and they might not come because they have realized that after all these years of uh, of excessive stimulus when when it was needed, they have been they have created this 
enormous issues and problems and mm. just adding more money is not going to help. And maybe in that sense, you know, the US should also be looking at what China is doing because it's probably more worrying what's going on in the US on this account compared to, to China. Mm. Well, it's almost got a new industrial policy now, hasn't it? The US, <laughs> yes. which involves, you know, subsidies and, and mm. all sorts of things. Um, now, China's published its long-awaited plan to tackle climate warming methane yesterday ahead of the COP28 climate summit. It included, though, no firm targets for reducing those emissions, only goals for reusing them as fuel. And some policy analysts well, said the plan was rather vague and disappointing because it doesn't include firm targets or timetables for reducing uh, those methane emissions. China pledged to effectively improve its monitoring and supervision systems for methane in its five-year plan um, and significantly improve those systems in 2026 to 2030. We've been waiting for this for a long time. Uh, what are your thoughts? If I may, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very important uh, announcement. Uh, um, clearly, it is a bit disappointed that they did not commit to uh, specific targets, but to be fair, I mean, uh, head of COP28, um, it's it's uh, every year it's like that. You know, people are wondering about the, looking at all the pledges that have been made and the commitments, and there are very very few countries actually that have been delivering uh, what they promised. And but a big issue, for instance, for for COP28 now is this uh, so-called loss and damages fund, uh, whereby um, more vulnerable countries are expected or have been promised some some money, which uh, uh, which is not coming, so to say. Mm. But for methane, methane is super is really important because it's as you you were mentioning in your intro, uh, Peter. It's um, it's a very um, uh, significant gas source of of basically a, a, a global warming. It's, a, it's eighty times more harmful than carbon dioxide, yeah, according yeah, to the United it, Nations. Exactly, and furthermore, actually, a lot of it can be removed through investment into the oil and gas sector is just making sure that you do not have this leak, leakage of, of, um, of gas. So uh, a lot can be done. Um, and uh, China, together with 130 countries, basically, or even more than that, I think, they signed a commitment to, uh, two years ago at COP26 in Glasgow and uh, to cut uh, to, uh, or to really, uh, you know, work on this methane production and uh, emissions. And some countries have committed targets. Again, China has not specifically committed targets, but to be, you know, to be honest, I actually have usually more confidence and trust in what China is doing in terms of climate than many other countries because they have shown, and for them it's it's a national priority because it's also you know connected to the to issues related to pollution in uh, in China. So I'm I'm less worried about that. And my final point on this is that. When you see how difficult the relationship between China and the U.S. is in general, uh, I find it uh, positive and definitely, um, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a good thing that the that U.S. and China have a cooperation on issues such as climate and nature. And, and recently as well, uh, we had the participation of, uh, of China Vice Tech Minister into the uh, AI Safety Summit that was organized in the U.K. So... When when trade and uh, becomes political, you still have issues you can discuss and cooperation. I think the APEC summit in uh, San Francisco next month or this next month, week. Next, next week. Oh, next week. Next, next week. week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll also have uh, a climate uh, on the agenda, and uh, it's, it's just all very positive that we we still have this cooperation going on. Mm -hmm.
countries seem to fall into two groups. They either fall into the group that makes targets, but we know they're missing them, and they have no hope of meeting them because they're such unrealistic targets. And then there's the other group, which China is in, which doesn't make any targets, which, <laughs> of course, makes it difficult to know um, how far it's going. But you, you seem to be saying, Corinne, that in many ways you trust China more than those countries that are making the unrealistic targets. Yes, I do. I do. And it's exactly the same if you look on a, on a micro level, looking at companies. You know, a lot of companies are, are committed, uh, commit, making commitments and big announcements. But then when you start looking into the, uh, the transition plans, for instance, it's, uh, it's uh, complete nonsense. There's, mm-hmm. there's nothing. These are just plans and wishes and dreams. But, you know, there's a third group, actually, who you were mentioning. Do you know which one it is? What's that? Well, it's, it's countries who are completely now disconnected to these uh, um, discussions on climate and and one of these are the poor countries no it's one of the well yeah depends how you define it no russia russia Russia, which is uh, since the the start of the war uh now i mean we are we used to be very active um on on these topics of climate action as being a a a big shareholder of companies in in russia and now we have uh you know all investors and the investor community in general, but also even, you know, call it the climate action community, is uh, now, there has no dialogue with, with Russia. So Russia, and Russia is, is one of the largest emit, uh, mm-hmm. issuer, emitters of greenhouse gas and methane on the planet. So this 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 is actually the, the worrying part for, for climate. So make sure that China still gets involved and, and, and committed to this uh, uh, national, you know, or international or global objectives for for climate is absolutely key to uh, to solving this uh, these issues francis what do you think of this plan that uh, that china is <coughs> well the plan is good but 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 the problem is uh, achieving it is the difficult part uh, actually china's done more than uh, than, than its fair share uh, you look at the solar power plants. Uh, China has more solar uh, power uh, uh, installed capacity than, than the rest of the world combined. Mm. But yet, at the same time, it's building more coal-fired generators than anybody else. <laughs> so so, so I, I think, I think the uh, Chinese government is more realistic that uh, it is tough, almost impossible to meet those uh, uh, zero carbon targets. Mm, but if we don't, <laughs> well, yeah. it's like a losing battle. I think so far, I think Denmark is the only country that can meet the zero carbon target. Mm. No other country can. Bhutan, I think. But you know, if, if we look at what's happening, <laughs> yeah, so that we only have to, countries. we only have to look at the weather outside this yeah. month, don't we, to, to realize what's yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Look, I'm back from India. I was in India last week. I can tell you that uh, uh, it's very worrying uh, there in terms of both pollution. I was actually in in, in Mumbai uh, when we had. I mean, the sky from Mumbai reminded me of, of uh, some of mainland city, uh, mainland China cities uh, in uh, just a year, some years ago. Extremely polluted with and the smog. And yes, I mean horrible smog. And uh, there we also have like you know I was meeting with companies where like it's very much early days in terms of of their climate action plans. Clearly, it is a big issue for both countries, uh, both China and India, because so much of the growth mm-hmm. comes from, I mean, you need power, and power still comes from, from coal. I mean, in China, 60% of power generation still comes from coal. So it's, mm. uh, and methane is actually, I mean, I guess one of the reasons they don't want to to officially and at least announce targets is that uh, it's, uh, it's a contentious point, you know, how to make sure you curb these fossil fuel emissions and 
they have to phase out coal, and, and it's really important. Okay, let me finish up with a quick thought on the, the markets. The, the, the two big pieces of news today was, first of all, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell mm-hmm. saying he wasn't confident that they'd yet got rates high enough to combat inflation, although he did caveat that by saying um, they could now afford to be more patient because there was... Uh, uh, less of an imbalance between doing too much and, and doing too little. And then also, of course, we had that poor 30-year bond auction, which has sent uh, bond yields racing up um, mm-hmm. overnight. And poor old Hong Kong uh, was still the worst performing market um, <laughs> of the year. Every week, Francis, we talk about this. Yeah. It doesn't seem to get any better. Well, the, the, the problem is, is the question of the the chicken and egg. Uh, if your the market doesn't go up, you, you don't get anybody to invest in. Mm. If you don't get anybody to invest in, the market won't go up. So we, we, which one do you want first? I think uh, the, the, the tough thing is you have to get more people to invest in the market. You, you cannot have a lively market when your turnover is under one trillion a day. Mm. It's something like only 700 billion, 750 billion yesterday. It's much too quiet. (laughs) There are too few people investing in Hong Kong. We need more confidence into Hong Kong. Um, I'm sure you you might have mentioned maybe during your podcast this week about this global, uh, what was it called? We have, yes. Yeah, yeah, Global Leaders Forum. And uh, it was, I mean, it's fantastic, actually, the the lineup of speakers, uh, people coming to Hong Kong and uh, saying, oh, things are not that bad here. We thought that, you know, people would be super depressed or <laughs> that the, the, the city has completely changed, and it hasn't. And so we need more people to come and to see that uh, clearly, I mean, Hong Kong is not, is not over. It's not over with Hong Kong. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, no, I mean, but obviously, I mean, you know, there's been a slower than expected revival mm. and, and, and uh, consumption numbers are also quite uh, not very exciting and, and uh, definitely not. Uh, and then, you know, the interest rates are likely to stay elevated and so forth. But, but clearly, uh, I, I agree with Francis that um, it's uh, it's an issue that you know investors need to uh, get back into the game, so to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. that's right. <laughs> well, thank you both very much. Great discussion this morning. Nice yeah. to see you and hear you both. And uh, have a great weekend. You heard there Francis Lund, who's the CEO of Geo Securities, and Corinne Hearn, who is Partner and Chief Sustainability Officer at East Capital Group. <laughs> I'm joined now by Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. Morning, Toby. Good morning, Peter. Now, the news of the week down there, the Reserve Bank of Australia raised interest rates for the first time in five months to combat what it said was persistent inflation. It increased rates by 25 basis points to a 12-year high of 4.35%. That ends a four-meeting um, pause. Toby, what's behind that? And, and was it a surprise? So, yes, it was. a. Oh, and it wasn't so much a surprise. I think the market, had, after we got the CPI figures the previous week, there was an expectation that they would go. So most of the, the market would, had priced in the 25 basis point move and it was a it was a, a really a response to um the idea you know, the principle that inflation's still too high it's not coming down quick enough um even though we're seeing some decline in consumption some decline in the lead indicators employment market is still tight housing market and rental market still very tight and the reserve feel that they've only got the one weapon which is monetary policy to try to slow aggregate demand and uh, so they felt that they needed to go again, 4.35 now the rate, and the market is not pricing out a chance of another one by December. 
Mm. So this is, um, they're, they're sort of now at odds with the Fed, aren't they, who seem to be on pause at the moment, um, although um, rate hikes there are not off the table um, either. Is inflation becoming a problem? Is it is it moving too far away from the target? So it, it's certainly, um, I mean, the supply chain impact um, is definitely out of the market. You know, we you talk to anyone, prices are coming off, whether it be in food, um, uh, whether it be in construction, building materials, those sort of things have come off. So the supply chain impact where inflation was initially so high, it's no longer relevant, at least at this point in time. Having said that, the one factor that's really driving um, uh, inflation stickiness in Australia is, is uh, migration. Um, in, in, in essence, what we're seeing is a, a 500,000 uh, increase in population over the last 12 months on a running mm. basis, which is over 2% population growth. Now, what does that do? That obviously creates um, uh, price pressures in and of itself, so more people, more demand, price go up, but also the impact on infrastructure spending. So the government's being forced to build more infrastructure. There's pressure on that, so that pushes up the price of infrastructure spending and also impacts the housing sector, not only in terms of housing but also rentals, which are, you know, vacancies at record lows, um, prices at, at highs. So those factors combined are leading towards inflation staying sticky. So it's as, a, as much a policy impact of the government forcing an increase in the migration numbers, which is a bit of a catch-up from COVID, but ultimately that's having an impact on keeping inflation high. And are the people that are coming in, are these highly skilled people? Are they people that Australia want to see, you know, coming into the country? I think Australia can absorb... Um, an increase in population across the board, whether, you know, uh, ideally you want to get skilled uh, migrants that add to GDP and create the multiplier effect. But more importantly, Australia, it's really about the pace at which you do it. Um, because if you look at it from a growth perspective, the Australian economy is growing well, but if you look at it on a per capita basis, it's actually declining. So we've had negative growth on the per capita basis because of the increase in numbers, even if our notional GDP is up. So it's... Um, it's, I guess the mix is important to some extent, but the overall number is really the, the speed at which we can um, bring in those migrants and provide infrastructure for them and that they can contribute to GDP. Um, and at the moment, it's just the sheer weight of numbers, not necessarily the makeup of them. Okay. Now, the big news overnight uh, was Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, first of all, talking about uh, inflation and interest rates. He was saying that he wasn't confident yet that monetary policy was restrictive enough uh, to to combat inflation, although he did caveat that by saying um, the balance of risks was now more um, equal between doing too much and and doing too little. And then also we had that uh, a failed or a pretty poor 30-year bond auction, uh, which has sent bond yields uh, soaring again overnight i mean first of all on on jerome powell he's not really saying anything that he hasn't said before is he it's just that the markets tend to be very um tunnel vision about what what they want to hear from him yeah i thought the language was maybe a little more hawkish um there wasn't much in it as you say i mean we already knew that they hadn't achieved essentially um target in terms of inflation and that that's a long road to hoe but um i think the fact that he used the word he was not confident Mm-hmm. Uh, that they've achieved a restrictive stance sufficient to get inflation to 2% target. I think that was probably the thing that, that caused the market most um, concern. Um, the balance of data, you mentioned it, the lagging data versus the leading data, this is where they're stuck a little bit. How much of the lag impact is yet to play through? Um, one of the other factors that they don't have any control over, and this is true for central banks 
um, more broadly is the fiscal policy impact and the fact that if governments are still spending and governments uh, are not getting their uh, accounts in order and reducing spending, it makes it more difficult for the Fed to do their job in terms of bringing inflation down. Now, maybe segueing across into your comment about the 30-year bond auction, um, it was the worst bid to cover on an auction for two years mm-hmm. um, and very low bid numbers, uh, and they're only trying to auction 24 bill of 30-year bonds. So that tells you as well that you know um, uh, demand uh, uh, for... Uh, the, you know, the the Treasury bonds um, is declining. And uh, this is another factor that might weigh against the Fed's view that it can ride the glide path to a soft landing. Mm. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's a lot of conflicting forces now in the bond market, obviously the economic ones on the one hand, but then there's also the safe haven status of Treasuries. And then this one, which people have pretty well forgotten about, which is that, um, you know, there's got to be a lot of bond issuance to fund this Mm -hmm. massive budget deficit. Um, And if the demand isn't there, which it didn't seem to be today, then there's a big problem. Yes. And uh, so this conundrum, and I think uh, Power even referred to um, that the Fed are are watching uh, the movements in in, uh, Treasury yields. And interestingly, you know, you've seen a lot of volatility in the bond market in the last month. Mm -hmm. You know, we got up to 5%, then back towards 45 and now back, back up again. Yeah, mm-hmm. 10 to 13 basis points overnight. So, yeah, the market is is definitely gyrating around these um, mixed messages on Treasury um, uh, yields and on debt, uh, US dollar debt. So, yeah, I think this is going to be a bit tricky. Um, and the equity market, whilst it had a relief rally from oversold conditions in October, you know, didn't like um, the auction result last night, didn't like the move in yields and didn't really like Powell's comments. Mm. And it seems then that for equities, a big driver, um, or still a big driver going forward, is the difference in in yields between US Treasuries and, and local um, government bonds. We're certainly seeing that in uh, in China. I presume similar thing in Australia um, as well. As long as that gap uh, remains wide, um, it's going to be a drag. Yes, I think there's no doubt. Uh, and it, it's becoming an increasing factor in in discussions around value of equities you know uh, it's you know it's it's one of the lead stories now when you know you look at equity performances so well what's the running yield on the bonds that's driving earnings yield and pe's and so all of those things are starting to become more contemporary if you will in the news cycle which actually has a big impact on investor sentiment so yeah it is definitely a factor. It's going to be a difficult quarter, isn't it, for, for equities? There seems to be so many conflicting things going on at the moment. So although we've got this nice eight-day rally in, in US um, stocks, that came to a, a, a sort of a screeching halt today. It's going to be very hard, isn't it, when there's so much uncertainty in the bond markets and in various geopolitical issues for, for equities to make much progress? Yeah, but interestingly, um, I think you're right, but interestingly, volatility you know, came off quite sharply in, you know, with all the geopolitical risk that's out there, vol, which had you know jumped up through twenty percent on the VIX, uh, now back to sort of fourteen, fifteen, came back off in equities. Um, you know that that helped equities as vol comes off. Um, so that's another indicator to look at volatility in the market, mm-hmm. uh, because equities tend to correlate well to the VIX. So we'll be watching that, um, uh, and it, it would appear as if you know from a geopolitical perspective what's happening in the middle east at least from an investor perspective suggests with the way oil prices have traded and the way volatility has traded that they're less concerned of a escalation or a spread of the hamas israel conflict so maybe that pieces out give a bit of relief to equities and to volatility but now it comes back towards treasury yields debt 
and, uh, you know, the more fundamental economic drivers of the market. And how much should we be focusing on China? Because we've had some key data this week. We first of all had the trade data, which showed exports declining more than expected, but imports unexpectedly rising, which surprised people and made them think that, well, maybe the domestic economy is perhaps doing a bit better than we thought. But then we got that inflation data yesterday, which shows consumer prices uh, back in deflation, declining 0.2%. Presumably, this is going to be something that uh, investors have also got to watch quite closely. Well, I think you know, um, whenever you see deflationary-type data coming out of China, you start to think of the Japan story back in the 90s, you know, in, in a long-term deflationary cycle. So it's a bit – I don't want to draw any inference directly to that, but that's sort of part of the journey maybe China's on. Um, and, you know, I think maybe the the language of the government and what have you to understanding that maybe the, the idea of, of trying to go – against the West to a large extent in terms of economic policy might not necessarily have worked as well. And we see it more locally here contemporary-wise that there seems to be a soothing of the relationship between China and Australia vis-a-vis trade, um, which reflects maybe that, you know, the idea that China felt that it was in a strong enough position to go go alone may have um, been adjusted somewhat because of the lack of growth in in the domestic economy and uh, a need to make sure that they keep that uh, ex- external side of the equation up. So it's an interesting, um, yeah, d- d- dilemma at, uh, or at least dynamic in China at the moment because you're seeing some some signs of growth, but it's not certainly what they would have expected, I think, post-pandemic. It, it is interesting, isn't it, on the, on the sort of geopolitical front in terms of China's relations with other countries around the world, there, there definitely has been a softening of language um, recently. It's less, um, it, it's less critical of, uh, of the US. And then, as you mentioned, uh, you had the Australian Prime Minister um, in China and both he and President Xi were talking about, you know, how good relations were now. But there does seem to be this noticeable softening coming uh, out to China. Yeah, and, and I don't speak as an expert on China uh, politics, but um, yeah, it may be that uh, they realise that you know that uh, they're still very much interdependent on what the you know, on Western countries um, to to see that some of their alliances maybe with Russia and others isn't necessarily um, going to work particularly well at this point in time. Yeah, maybe they've just pivoted to say, look, you know, we 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 might have gone a bit too hard mm. on the hard language, and you know, we need to soften up and and keep those relationships going. And I think this reflects strongly on Chinese cultures. You know, they tend to be very practical, um, even if there's an ideological difference between what the West has and what China views in terms of ideology. They're still pretty practical when it comes to trade and economics. So it's quite possible they've just reacted and said, you know, in order to ensure that we maximize our capacity on the economic front we need to be a little more amenable in that relationship it's again that's me taking a view from outside not being an expert so it's going to be very interesting to see what comes out of the apex summits in a in a week's time and whether or not yeah as well as just words maybe there is some real policy initiatives or some policy changes to back up uh, the the words i think it'll be interesting to watch yeah i think and and as you said i think we're starting to see hints of it uh, and something more tangible through that epic meeting would be quite interesting to see. Okay. Well, Toby, thanks very much. Always good to talk to you on a Friday. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. 
Thank you very much for listening this morning and this week. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll have more business and finance updates for you on Monday. Joining me then are Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Sam Favre, CEO at Mandarin Capital. And providing a view from mainland China will be Brock Silvers, the CIO at Kion Capital. Have a great weekend. Money Talk 